0: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.
1: So she engineered a situation where he could be summoned late at night in the middle of a rainstorm in a a subdivision in in St. Louis County, where he'd be alone. It was assumed that most kidnapping was perpetrated by gangsters until the Lindbergh case. This really lifted the veil on the whole business that kidnapping
0: had become. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. wasn't just the Lindbergh baby. In the year 1932 alone, an estimated 3,000 Americans were held for ransom. The crimes became so common, the New York Times began publishing a regular feature called Recent Kidnappings in America. Wealthy families took out kidnap insurance, and St. Louis was labeled the kidnap capital of America. That's all from first-time author Carolyn Cox's riveting new nonfiction book. It's called The Snatch Racket, The Kidnapping Epidemic that terrorized 1930s America and Carolyn Cox joins us today to discuss it. Carolyn, welcome. Uh, Hi Sarah, nice to be with you. So Carolyn, I'm I'm so excited that you can join us to talk about this book. There's such fascinating history in here and you actually start this book with a kidnapping in 1931 St. Louis. The victim was Dr. D. Kelly. Who was he?
1: Well Dr. Kelly was um, a celebrated uh, ear nose and throat physician, probably the best in the region. Um, he was married to a very lovely woman whose uh, father was one of the original uh, Standard Oil hmm. uh, uh, wealthy people. <laughs> um, they were high society of every kind in St. Louis. They lived in um, uh, they lived, uh, you know, among the high and mighty, no doubt about it. Um, and uh, they actually they lived in Portland Place, uh, which was a gated and guarded community. Um, so it was major, major news when a victim uh, like Dr. Kelly uh, could be uh, snatched and he was uh, held in captivity for eight days, so it was quite a a long time for the family and the community to be uh, quite concerned, and um,
0: it was a story all over the country. So what made Dr. Kelly a target of kidnappers?
1: Well, obviously the fact that he was uh, prosperous and had access uh, not only to his own um, uh, serious earnings but his wife's family fortune that that you know they were written about in the newspapers they were always uh, at society events so it was easy to know that they were quite prosperous mm-hmm. um, but the interesting thing is to me at least, is that the individual who selected him uh, as a good target for kidnapping was uh, a, a woman whose husband was a doctor. In fact, her husband was the chief of staff of the Barnes Hospital in St. Louis. And she figured out that Dr. Kelly was actually a great target because he went out on house calls at night Hmm. And so she engineered a situation where he could be summoned uh, late at night in the middle of a rainstorm in a a, a subdivision, uh, the Davis Place subdivision in St. Louis County, where he'd be alone. Hmm. And um, that was the way a lot of targets were actually kidnapped. They were... uh, uh, found in places where they would be alone. Hmm.
0: So this story, there's a lot of great details in this. I'm so glad you mentioned Nellie Munch, who, whose husband was the chief of staff at Barnes. What, a, what an amazing detail right there. One of the other parts of this story that just blew my mind. Uh, so Dr. Kelly ended up being returned safe and sound, but he ended up telling his story to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch even before he was able to tell it to his wife, who'd been desperately waiting for his return. How did that come Uh,
1: Well, that's a very interesting uh, tidbit of this case, but there was uh, a reporter, a crime reporter uh, for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch named John Rogers, and on more than one occasion, John Rogers, it turns out, uh, was really sort of the uh, go-between kidnappers and the victims family, um, and he brought in, to help him make contact with the kidnappers, uh, a very well-known, very highly regarded lawyer in East St. Louis, who happened also to be uh, the U.S. Congressman for East St. Louis, Charles Karch. And Karch and Rogers together. Uh, with contacts that they had with organized crime were able to set up the release of Dr. Kelly and in fact John Rogers went and picked him up. Uh, One of the conditions uh, for the whole arrangement was that he would receive the first interview with Dr. Kelly when he was released and the gang agreed to that condition and agreed not to retaliate against Dr. Kelly for telling his
0: story. And I mean, that's a great way to get the scoop. You you get to pick up the victim as as he's being brought back to safety. It sounds like Dr. Kelly wasn't even sure if he had much of a choice of, of whether he was uh, could get away with not telling his story. The kidnappers told him to cooperate. That sounds like part of the reason he ended up cooperating with this journalist. Uh, It
1: definitely is. I mean, he was originally taken aback when John Rogers said, Oh, by the way, Dr. Kelly, I won't be taking you home. I'll first take you to my house where you'll give me uh, a complete rundown on what happened to you. And Kelly thought, wait wait a second, you know, I mean, I'm expecting to go straight home and I'm going to do exactly what the kidnappers told me, which was don't open my mouth to anybody. And then he thought about it again and realized that the kidnappers told him two different times to do whatever John Rogers told him to do. Hmm. And so Dr. Kelly told the story.
0: So these were some wild times in 1931 St. Louis. I mean, this this story is just crazy. But this particular kidnapping ended up having a real galvanizing effect on the business community. There had obviously been kidnappings before this. Why did this one end up being such a big deal?
1: Uh, I think, Sarah, that primarily it was because... Uh, It happened in 1931 Hmm. when people were beginning to realize, wait a second, this is, uh, you know, a wave of kidnappings, primarily in the Midwest at that point. But um, the Chamber of Commerce of St. Louis was particularly bothered by this because St. Louis, um, according to the Chamber, was ideally situated to be an up-and-coming center of commerce and industry, and they put a lot of money into, you know, marketing St. Louis to tourists and to business, and uh, publicity like this was really devastating, and so the chairman of the Chamber of Commerce called together a lot of... Uh, big players in St. Louis, the rich, the famous, the prosperous, and said, we've got to do something about this. And, you know, that sort of started a, uh, a whole presentation where people would stand up and say, well, this is what's happened to me. And the next one would stand up and say, and I'm afraid my family's going to be targeted, etc." So hmm. the upshot of that was that Uh, The St. Louis Chamber of Commerce actually orchestrated the effort to go to Congress and to ask Congress to make interstate kidnapping, a federal crime for the
0: first time. And what's interesting here is that it was initially J. Edgar Hoover who resisted this. Obviously, he, he would change his tune, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But why did he not seize this opportunity um, that these St. Louis businessmen had kind of laid the table for him? Well, he really wasn't,
1: uh, I would say, ever resistant uh, to... Kidnapping becoming a federal crime. In fact, he was very hopeful that it would be Hmm. because he wanted to use something and kidnapping seemed to be uh, a good idea to use it as the signature crime of the FBI to really show the world who the FBI was. But he didn't have jurisdiction to uh, do that before the ultimate passage of the Lindbergh Law in 1932. So he was trying to edge his way into cases, but there was no jurisdiction at the time.
0: Hmm. So as you write in this book, the Lindbergh kidnapping really changed everything. Sort of this urgency they felt in in St. Louis became something that people felt all around the country at that point. Tell us a bit about the impact that had. Uh, Well, it
1: publicized kidnapping as nothing before ever had. Uh, you know, a lot of people may have known someone or, uh, who had been kidnapped, but for the most part, until the Lindbergh case, it was assumed that most kidnapping was uh, perpetrated by gangsters against other gangsters that were their enemies, and that was what it was for the most part. But in 1932, when little Charlie Lindbergh was uh, stolen away from his home uh, and ultimately found uh, murdered, this really lifted the veil on the whole business that kidnapping had become in the United States. And then when Charles Lindbergh and his wife Anne actually had to go to the underworld, they had to ask gangsters to please help them contact the kidnappers of his son, whom they assumed were gangsters, uh, which turned out not to be true. But Mm -hmm. they went to them hat in hand and begged them to help. And of course, uh, the underworld actually really stepped up. They were some of the most active investigators in the very first days of the kidnapping, but when that became revealed throughout the country that even the Lindberghs had to uh, go to the underworld, then there was a mass uh, level of almost hysteria uh, about how the government couldn't stand up to the underworld, the government couldn't protect Americans and kidnapping was the most heinous crime possible. So it was overnight an absolute slam dunk that the anti-kidnapping legislation would be enacted. Uh, It would have been enacted the morning after Charlie Lindbergh was kidnapped, except for the fact that the Lindberghs asked uh, the Congress to hold off and not do it because they were afraid that it might discourage the kidnappers from
0: returning the child. Carolyn, you, you mentioned there the idea of the Lindberghs appealing to the underworld for help, trying to get organized in cri- organized crime involved. And, and as you say, organized crime wanted to help in that case and, and wasn't able to locate this, this baby. It's interesting that there was some precedent for that. One of the other kidnappings that, that you detail in this book, this also happened in Missouri, also in 1931, just like the kidnapping of Dr. D. Kelly. This was businesswoman Nell Quinlan Donnelly in Kansas City. This is something where the mafia got involved and actually saved her. Tell, tell us what happened in that case. <laughs> That's another one of my favorite cases. Actually,
1: Nell Donnelly was um, 40 years old. She was a first-time mother of a 17-year-old ba- uh, 17-week-old baby. Uh, and she was being driven home one evening in December by her chauffeur uh, as they turn into the driveway of her home uh, in Kansas City. The kidnappers just drove in right behind the car and blocked their exit. Uh, The gangsters with their guns pulled went and opened the doors of the car and they uh, crammed in beside uh, Nell and her chauffeur. They pulled a bag over her head, a cloth bag over her head. She was kicking and screaming. Um, Ultimately, they drove her across the state line into Kansas about 15 miles away from her home and hid her along with her chauffeur um, in the basement with lights off Um, and uh, her husband actually brought in their neighbor who uh, was uh, a senator, uh, Missouri's senator Jim Reed, very famous guy. Ultimately, ran for president, uh, for Democratic Party nomination for president several times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Jim Reed came in to kind of organize the rescue, and the first thing he did was call in the press and make a a speech uh, to the kidnappers, whoever they were, saying. Uh, he was going to spend the rest of his life looking for uh, Donnelly, uh, yeah, Nell Donnelly, and she wasn't brought home unharmed uh, immediately, and they could have their ransom money. Um, but then as soon as he finished doing that, he uh, picked up the telephone and called a man named Johnny Lazia, who was the head of the mafia in Kansas City, um, who's office, by the way, was in the Kansas City Police Department. And <laughs> That's quite a good detail right there. Yeah, I love that one. Uh, and Senator Reid, uh, who was um, a fixture in the Pendergrass political machine, which explains why he knew Johnny Lazia and why Johnny Lazia picked up the phone, uh, Senator Reed said, Uh, She better be back in 24 hours or I'm personally going on the radio to tell a lot of stuff that I happen to know Johnny about your criminal activity So Lazia knew immediately that this had nothing to do with organized crime in Kansas City because Nell Donnelly was beloved Throughout the city. She was probably the largest employer in the city during Um, uh, the Depression. She hired a thousand people to make clothes uh, for women, fashion for women. So Lazia immediately called in supposedly 25 carloads of criminals and armed gangsters and told them to uh, go out canvas every Underworld hangout in anywhere they could think of until they could find out where Nell Donnelly and her chauffeur were being held and to bring her home. And uh, sure enough before dawn they had found her in this horrible little uh, cellar across the state line and uh, Nell and her chauffeur were terrified when They saw these masked people come in with guns because they didn't really know who they were. They would rather have stayed with the kidnappers until uh, one of the underworld figures uh, carefully explained that they were actually her friends and they were there to rescue her. Mm. And they did. She and the chauffeur were left on the side of the road a few miles away, and they called the Kansas City police chief to tell him where to get them.
0: (laughs) So there's a happy ending on that one. Um, Obviously, that is not what happened in the case of the Lindbergh baby. I mean, people were on on pins and needles uh, for weeks on that one, only for there to be the most tragic ending imaginable that it turned out the kidnappers had killed this baby, Um, And as you say, this this gave the feds the ammo they needed to take over kidnapping and get some laws passed that would put this firmly in their jurisdiction. Is that what it really took to wipe out this epidemic?
1: Well, certainly uh, making interstate kidnapping a federal crime. uh, By the way, it wasn't all kidnapping, just kidnapping that involved uh, transportation of the victim across a state line. But making that a federal crime meant that uh, the FBI could investigate those crimes and the FBI had agents all over the United States, uh, even, you know, Canada, Mexico, places like that. uh, They could immediately search for uh, victims. They could search for witnesses. They could track down kidnappers and they could track ransom money as it was spent. So you have all all of a sudden uh, a whole footprint all over the country that was investigatory. It also meant that the United States Department of Justice could prosecute these federal kidnappings and that took away uh, much of the power of organized crime who, you know, that had ways of evading Uh, the criminal process in state courts Hmm. Uh, and it also uh, gave impetus to more federal anti-crime legislation that had the need for which was becoming apparent in the automobile age. So um, I think that it was a real difference, uh, not just uh, a, uh, you know, hoped for difference Uh, because it made the tracing of ransom money, among other things, uh, possible.
0: My guest today is Carolyn Cox. She's the author of The Snatch Racket, The Kidnapping Epidemic That Terrorized 1930s America. This is a great book. There's so much history in this, and actually a lot of St. Louis history, as as well as history of things happening across the Midwest where kidnapping seemed enormously popular. Carolyn, I'm curious to hear a little bit about your story. Um, You were a partner at the law firm Wilmer Hale in Washington, D.C. What led you to have this second life as as the author of nonfiction books and, and a book about kidnapping? In particular? <laughs> uh,
1: well, that is an excellent question, Sarah, and I must say uh, many people uh, ask that question. Um, I kind of always wanted to see what it would be like to uh, write a book. I like to read books. Um, I live only about 15 miles away from uh, the National Archives and Record Administration here in the Washington area, and so I knew I had at my disposal, unbelievable treasure of of archival material. And for some reason, pretty much all my life, I've been fascinated by kidnapping. I mean, what would make a kidnapper do something like this? Uh, Why would somebody become a victim? All that sort of stuff interested me. And uh, when I sat in front of my empty computer screen, uh, after I retired, I got to thinking, wait a second, Um, why don't I try to figure out whether it's really true that the FBI was uh, instrumental in attacking kidnapping and that it had a uh, deserved reputation for investigating kidnappings. And I thought I'd find a book or two very easily Uh, And after several days of searching, I realized nobody had really written that book. And it was something that I really wanted to know about. Mm -hmm. So... One thing led to another.
0: So you dug deeply into these cases that they investigated. And, and some of the things that you um, you came up with that, that are now in this book is how in the process of stopping kidnapping or arresting kidnappers, the FBI took some real shortcuts as far as civil liberties are concerned. You know, I'm thinking about how... Um, Uh, In one case, they knowingly tried the wrong gang for a kidnapping, and they didn't share this exculpatory evidence. Were you surprised by some of these things you found in the files that, frankly, don't make the FBI look so good? Uh, Yes and no. Uh,
1: I definitely was startled when I would be flipping through uh, these old files, and I would see uh, wet ink notes by J. Edgar Hoover, sometimes red, and I knew not to pass that one over, sometimes blue ink. Um, I was always startled when I found out that they deliberately evaded some restriction. Wiretapping was a particular problem at this time. The FBI had one Uh, justification after another for wiretapping even when they uh, were forbidden to do it. Hmm. Um, And the incident that you mentioned still troubles me, Um, but I think uh, there are different ways to try to explain that to ourselves. Uh, I think the most benign way to explain it is that Hoover and his special agents and prosecutors all felt very personally and deeply that kidnapping was one of the most horrid crimes ever and that getting the victim home to uh, his or her family was uh, their sacred duty. Uh, Beyond that, I think that the FBI did get into some bad habits that have been well documented in many other Uh, books and investigations, and this was no exception.
0: Hmm. Well, Carolyn Cox, it is such a good book. I just want to congratulate you on going out there writing your first book that is absolutely a page-turner, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today to talk about it. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. And Carolyn's book is The Snatch Racket, The Kidnapping Epidemic That Terrorized 1930s America. I do have a quick programming note. Our guest on tomorrow's show is an infectious disease physician at SLU's Center for Vaccine Development. We're taking any and all vaccine questions. Email yours to talk at stlpublicradio.org or leave us a voicemail at 314-516-6397. Again, that's 314-516-6397. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.